What are you reading now? And what have you read in the past? How do the things you've read in the past help you better understand what you're reading today? Or in the future for that matter? And what if it wasn't just what you read, but what you listened to or watched? And hey, what if this could be shared with lots of folks? Welcome to That Reminds Me. This is episode 2 of That Reminds Me, a conversation between Adish Khanna and Ashish Kulkarni that was recorded on 12 May 2020. Ashish and Adish spoke about Jeffrey Lockwood's book Locust, which is a history of the North American locust species. Although that seems like a narrow and esoteric subject on first encounter, the book draws connections to many other fields of study, and Adish and Ashish had fun exploring these other connections. So much fun that they dropped their plan of discussing another book in this episode. This episode was recorded about three weeks before the swarm of desert locusts reached India and is being published about two weeks afterwards. Good afternoon, Adish. How are you? Good afternoon, Ashish. I'm absolutely fine. How about you? Things are going good. Things are going good. Well, as good as they can under the current circumstances, but for both of us sakes, let's not go there. <laughs> let's go somewhere else. Absolutely. And one place that I really want to go to, and it's about as good an introduction as I think we've ever given to an episode that we've recorded. Let's talk about locusts. Uh, the two episodes that we're going to talk about today are uh, two blog posts that you've written based on what you have read. One, of course, is Locust, a book written by Jeffrey A. Lockwood. I haven't read the book, but given your blog post and our enthusiastic conversations about uh, you having read the book makes me want to speak about it, which is why we want to go with it first, or at least I will want to go with it first. And once we are done with Locust, the other book that we're going to discuss is um, The City That We Became, or The City We Became by N.K. Jemisin. Hopefully, I'm pronouncing it correctly. I myself pronounce it that way, and I'm not too sure if I'm doing it right either. <laughs> okay, okay, so let's with uh, what we've got. But I really do want to begin with Locust because of all of the things that we just spoke about. The fact that it's a fascinating topic in its own right. The fact that you are very enthusiastic about uh, speaking about it. And your blog post is full of very, very interesting snippets in their own right. In fact, uh, a bit of a confession, I think we might end up talking about just this episode today, uh, this blog post today. We'll see how we go. But there's a lot to unpack in this particular book. Surely. Beginning with uh, a question that or other uh, something that I'm sure you want to speak about uh, if ever your juniors do end up uh, listening. Do tell the audience about how they reminded you about this book. When I was in B school, I had a class size of 187 people. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I went into my second year, the new batch, the incoming batch, had about 250 people. They also had their classes ending 15 minutes before ours, which meant that they got to lunch 15 minutes before us. And in uh, encountering food that had been cooked, keeping the experience of 180 to 200 uh, person class in mind, suddenly being swarmed by a 250 member class was pretty much like watching a locust swarm. (laughs) My year ended up uh, calling our juniors locusts. That insult, characterization, joke, whatever you choose to call it, managed to last about two years before future batches uh, completely forgot about the etymology. 
So a little bit of IIMB history for some long lost episode way out in the future. 15 year old history. 15 year old history. Excellent. But I don't know how big your uh, junior batch was. But this is the part that uh, I struggle to come to terms with. You mentioned in your blog post that some of these locusts or the swarms of locusts that were observed in North America were, and I'm quoting from your blog post right now, at least a quarter mile deep, 1,800 miles long and 110 miles wide. Now, don't misunderstand me and please don't get offended when I say this, but surely there's going to be a typo over here. 1,800 miles long? Let me uh, look it up myself and see if I have made a typo. How, how about we uh, go on to something b- before we come back to that? Because yes, this is going to take and, me something uh, to look up. To be clear, both uh, for the audience as well as uh, Adish, this is not me hoping to spot an error in the blog post. It's just that if the number is correct, this is beyond mind-blowing for two reasons. One, because 1,800 miles is just insane. But second, you've got to pity the locust who's bringing up the rare, so to speak. That's got to be a locust who's on some serious intermittent fasting. (laughs) (laughs) Actually gets even worse because uh, once the locust in front runs out of uh, uh, crops to eat, it starts in on wood. And once the wood runs out, it starts in on cloth. And once the cloth runs out, it starts in on the weaker locusts. Yep, you, you've mentioned this. So, if nothing else, they descend into cannibalism. All in yes. all, it's a horrifying book to read. It becomes horrifying, then fascinating, and then horrifying again for entirely different reasons. Yep, and I'm sure we'll get to each one of them uh, in turn. But let me come back to the point that I made about, well, it was a joke when I made it, but the point about intermittent fasting I was actually strongly reminded of intermittent fasting at least a couple of times when reading your blog post. One was uh, the Mormon religion commanding them to take a Sabbath not just every uh, seven days, but also every seven years. Yeah, and uh, so the concept of the Sabbath, which started uh, with the Jewish religion and moved on to Christianity, uh, which shifted their day of rest from Saturday to Sunday, and then again on to Islam, which shifted it to Friday. Mm -hmm. So there is a biblical commandment starting right from the book of Genesis, which says that God rested on the seventh day, and which leads to saying that you as humans should also rest on the seventh days or every seventh day. Mm -hmm. The Mormon religion extended that not just to observing every Sunday as a Sabbath, but saying that every seventh year, if you're a cultivator, you should let your land rest. Yep, and that essentially is the principle of, uh, so the book that this most strongly reminds me of, and I don't know if you've read it, and maybe we've spoken about it earlier and I've forgotten, but Anti-Fragile by Nicholas Nassim Talib. I haven't read it, but I... My general impression of Nicholas Taleb is that he comes up with an idea which is sensible in itself and then extends it to lots of things. So an extension to intermittent fasting is not that surprising. (laughs) So uh, 
essentially he says and i'm very quickly going to describe the book and i'll be very interested to hear your thoughts on it because there are multiple ways in which it ties into what you've written over here anti fragile essentially says that uh, some things and i won't get into either the math or too much into the logic over here but some things that exist become stronger when you apply stress to them yeah as an economist uh, i like it because it's the most intuitive way i can explain indifference curves to my students but that really is the basic point that he is making and you can think of it as high intensity interval training you can think of it as taking a break from the gym you can think of it as intermittent fasting or you can think of it as letting the land lie fallow for one year every seven years but the idea that you should give a rest in order to become strong is comes up repeatedly and the reason i say it comes up repeatedly is because you don't just mention it in terms of the seven year fast but you also speak about how the best way to deal with locust was to leave a strip of land um i forget the exact term that you used but to leave a strip of land so that locust couldn't jump across strips of land on the same farm yeah let me uh, make it clear for the listeners yes. this strip of land is not something where we are saying that you are leaving a plot vacant or you're leaving a plot fallow which is what we see in crop rotation and if you're saying that 75% of your land as a farmer to cropping and leave 25% fallow and rotate the 25% which gets left every year as part of crop rotation that's a good idea on it uh, on its own terms to recharge the uh, nutrition in the field the locust control is not that you're not leaving a huge contiguous plot, uh, plot of land fallow what you're doing is that on the sides of the of your plants you're digging something like a 3-inch ditch so that when the locust hatches out of its egg in that form it can't fly it doesn't have wings yet but right. it it can't climb up very steep vertical uh, earth either if it's too uh, if it's this 2-inch or 6-inch deep ditch so the whole idea is that you you just have lots of rows of not very deep ditches along the sides of your uh, plants which mm-hmm. trap the locust nymphs inside them all right so uh, in your blog post adish you've gone on uh, in more detail than you usually do in terms of summarizing a book and you've in a sense given a very brief summary of each chapter and i'm going to skip forward a little bit and speak about chapters 5 to 7 where you discuss the three entomologists who are instrumental in setting up the united states entomological commission sure and uh, before we get to that i just uh, went back and checked and yeah the, the person who made this estimate of 1800 miles long and 110 miles wide was correct yeah. uh, i mean i don't know if he was correct but i have made a, a typo in your blog post right yeah 1800 miles it it boggles the imagination that is that wow biblical is a understatement the book then goes on to say that even if this calculation was slightly off because this was an estimate made by someone with nothing more than a telescope or a spyglass yeah it it would still have dwarfed the biggest observed locust swarm in asia or africa since that time not just since 1850 but in all of recorded history i should sincerely hope so because swarm bigger than this i don't want to think about 
let's move on to chapters 5 to 7 and i've got some very weird references and memories that have been triggered uh, by reading the points that you raise over here uh let me speak about each one of them in turn chapters 5 to 7 as i just mentioned earlier uh, discusses the three entomologists who set up the united states entomological commission and that actually deserves a separate bullet point or a conversation in its own right in simple english it basically means the united states set up a commission to examine insects that's right and for for a variety of reasons the fandom that both you and i have for sherlock holmes and a whole host of other things besides uh, an entomological commission isn't just a think that is worthy a couple of giggles it actually is surprisingly important in the lives that we lead without even thinking or realizing how important insects are of course because uh, there is an impact of insects on agriculture both with as pests like locusts and as helpful in insects as pollinators like bees exactly. which is i which is i think the sherlock holmes connection you wanted to draw yep yep exactly so uh the other thing that chapters 5 to 7 reminded me of uh, and for a couple of reasons one is a lovely book one of the most impressive books i've read in the last couple of years for the depth of research is a bu- book called the prophet and the wizard or the wizard and the prophet i can never remember the order written by a guy called i want to say charles h man m a n n uh historian i think i think so and it i remind i got reminded of both uh, the author as well as this specific book for a couple of reasons one because charles h man does a really good job of painting the childhood memories of both of these pr- protagonists so to speak uh, the wizard and the prophet in this particular book very quickly the book is about a very positive and a very negative view of the green revolution although that's probably a an a very poor way of describing the book but to me the book became more readable because i understood the decisions that both the wizard and the prophet had taken in that particular book as a consequence of the kind of childhood that they had led and i was curious to find out if this biography which of course is more about locus and anything else also helps you understand the kind of problems these entomologists faced working between themselves which you have mentioned was it at least partially because of their childhood i think when we get to the problems people have working with each other it's really psychotherapy or psychological diagnosis from afar yeah. and that too in our case it would be third hand because <laughs> we are going uh, on the basis of lockwood's book he would have gone on the basis of somebody else's papers and yes. uh, so i'm not really sure we should get into that the, <laughs> the book is really lovely in how it describes all their early fascinations with observing and sketching insects in their childhood and these are people who grew up before pesticides and who uh, in some cases grew up uh, in the countryside mm-hmm. so they would have seen many many insects in their childhood compared to what we uh, what we would have seen or what the next generation will see sorry. and the sorry good and the particular circumstance of their studying locusts except uh, in the case of one scientist boris petrovich ovarov mm-hmm. it's not like loc- uh, he's the only one who had locusts as a childhood interest everyone else was uh, a scientist in some cases not even uh, someone who had su- studied entomology formally but who who were forced into 
tackling locusts and studying locusts because of the circumstances around them. Okay, uh, so one a bit of an apology and second a bit of a pushback. I worded that question not only incorrectly but also very very poorly. I didn't mean to speak just about the conflicts that the three entomologists had, but also their interest in this field as a consequence of they perhaps having been interested in entomology as children. The second reason why I wanted to bring this up is because I'm halfway through JBS Haldane's biography written by Saman Subramanyam. Great book. And one reason why I like that book, I've only read it halfway through, like I mentioned, is again because of the emphasis and the attention that Saman lavishes on the childhood of JBS Haldane. And I'm quite curious now in most of the biographies or most of the nonfiction books that I read about how childhood interests go on to have long-term ramifications. Which is why I brought up that point. Yeah, it's definitely the case for the three uh, entomologists who are given these chapter-long biographies in, in this book. Okay, all right. Uh, one thing that I myself do not know about, and which is why I want to ask you this, it doesn't remind me of anything, but I'm hoping to learn more, and I deliberately did not look it up myself. What is phylloxera or phylloxera? Uh, phylloxera or phylloxera, again, I'm not sure uh, myself of uh, the pronunciation. It's a fungal disease which attacks grapevines. And in the late 19th century or early 20th century, it spread like wildfire across Europe to the extent that almost the entire wine growing farms, the grapeyards, the vineyards of Europe were almost completely wiped out. What makes it especially fascinating is that phylloxera is probably a North American fungus and North American uh, grapevines did not suffer a disease even if phylloxera was around. However, North American grapevines produced terrible grapes for wines, perhaps even for fruit. So between the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century, there was a massive effort of taking these North American grape species over to Europe, planting them, grafting the old European grapes onto them, or perhaps vice versa. Again, I don't have the details fresh in my mind. So to the extent that all European wine which you drink today is not European at all, but a hybrid of North American and European grapes. Yep. Unless my memory is failing me, this is also discussed uh, in a book that you had recommended and I think both of us uh, love to bits, The Drunken Botanist. I can't remember the name of the author, but I seem to remember reading about this in that book as well. Yes. As a footnote to the story of Phylloxera, what this has also meant is that any European uh, grapevines which survived the phylloxera epidemic uh, of about 150 years ago are mm. now so rare that wine from them is highly prized as a rarity. Uh, yep. It's not specified how good or how tasty that wine is. So a uh, minor confession, and I, I don't know if you've spoken about this earlier, but I don't have a sense of wine tasting at all. So even when I sniff a glass and look at it and pretend to like it, I really have no clue what I'm doing. Well, sure, but I, I, neither do I, but I feel that even in the 
even with our undefined palettes we know what we like and we know what we don't like and i don't know where phylloxera would fall on that spectrum that is true uh, a reference both for myself and anybody else who's interested in making a note of it the same guy who wrote the wizard and the prophet has also written uh, two books i think they are called 1491 and 1493 about what the flora and fauna of north america looked like before columbus landed and after columbus landed and the reason i bring it up is because i'm quite curious to find out if i ever get around to reading those books if he mentions the locusts of north america this book came up very weirdly uh, in the sense that there is a threatened locust infestation in pakistan and india for this summer there has right. already been a locust infestation in africa earlier this year and i think that's the reason this book was pending on goodreads and came to my attention but having read it again for injo reasons of my preschool days i also see that this is not a book that a huge number of other people have read and i think the story of the american locusts is not all that well known so it will be very interesting to see if charles man has addressed the locusts but i think it's not that well known a story fascinating all right and i've got a impossibly long reading list so i don't know when i'll when i'll get around to it but one day jaldi kisko hai okay uh, the other thing that i wanted to speak about is uh, as an economist i found this fascinating uh, i don't know the exact year in which this point takes place or the point occurs but this uh, gentleman called criddle who ordered a telescope from london for delivery to the canadian prairie you mentioned that uh, the poor guy wouldn't even have been able to track shipping but to me it's a testimony to how awesome uh, supply chains must have been at that point of time for you to be able to order something sitting in the middle of the canadian prairie and for it to actually reach you no matter how long it took well true my focus was more on what a blessing it is to be able to see where exactly your package is but <laughs> it is true that if you're sitting who knows how many kilometers away from a post office let alone a city you're still able to order a telescope yep yep and we should be very thankful for cradle that the telescope survived that journey absolutely i don't know if you read this book uh, adish is one of my favorite books to recommend both to students of art well as students of economic history uh, this is a book written by if i remember correctly an oxford historian um, called timothy brooks and the name of the book is uh, vermeer's hat unfortunately not so the dutch painter vermeer uh, what timothy brooks does is he takes eight of the most famous paintings of vermeer and asks where on the within the paintings each object that has been painted where in the world could it possibly have come from and he draws out how globalization was very much a feature even at the time that vermeer was painting his paintings and for vermeer to include those things as objects in his paintings meant that they were relatively common place but they could not have come from holland they needed to have traveled from literally the world over okay and, and you yeah the reason uh, i was reminded of this book is because ordering a telescope from uk and having it reach the middle of the canadian prairie 
in a sense reminded me of that particular book yeah okay on to chapters uh, 9 and if i'm not mistaken chapters 10 maybe more for myself than anybody else but i can't see how anybody would not be interested could you be- briefly walk us through yuvarov and fauray i'm going to be really bad with the pronunciations but let me go with u v a r o v and f a u r e they seem to be pretty important people in the book could you just briefly walk us through what they did and why they are important to this particular book okay so the book kicks off with locust infestations in north america in the late 19th century so mm-hmm. about the 1870s and this is a time when the usa civil war has ended the usa having finished its civil war has now the new conflict starts with the native americans of the north american plains beyond the mississippi yep. and the us military starts uh, pushing the native americans further and further back there are many ma- massacres and at the same time it's encouraging people from the eastern states to move beyond the mississippi and offers any family which moves into these new states and territories 20 acres if they agree to farm them so you have lots of settlers who are moving into the uh, these new states mm-hmm. starting to farm and this is a, a time and there is an eco- economics context to this this is a time where the united states is in recession manufacturing has collapsed in the eastern states so for people who've lost their jobs in a factory the prospect of moving and becoming a farmer and if nothing else being able to grow your own food is highly attractive so they've done this and they have within 3 years not only faced disease because they are cut off from any modern medicine they faced bad weather which again can cut them off from their markets and after about 3 years they start facing these locust infestations as well okay there are about 3 years in a row of locust infestations and locust swarming which wipe out these uh, farmers who are in the new states and uh, these states are states like wisconsin minnesota what what is now north dakota and south dakota which weren't states at that time they they were a territory so you have people who escaped an industrial collapse and are now facing an agricultural collapse thanks to these locust infestations locusts are a really big deal at this point because of all these people who are suffering rural distress there is also absolutely no idea uh, at this point what a locust is and if it differs from a grasshopper so the farmers who have moved here could see a grasshopper and be scared to death thinking that it's a locust and for about 10 to 15 years there is this tendency to panic when you see a grasshopper there <laughs> is immense research going on on whether locusts and grasshoppers are the same species or not 
and for a long time there is a theory that no a locust and a grasshopper are two different species right i'm simplifying because of course there are many species of locust and there are many species of grasshopper but we we are uh, talking of a period of time where it is generally thought that the grasshopper which a farmer would see in the normal course of affairs is not the same species as a locust and does not presage a locust swarm now towards the end of the uh, 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century we have this gentleman boris petrovich uvarov who's a uh, russian guy his family is sent to what is now kazakhstan and uh, becomes farmers over there uh, while he's growing up in kazakhstan he's studying the grasshoppers over there and he begins to suspect that a locust actually is the same species as a grasshopper but it's a form of a grasshopper that emerges under some sort of circumstances and the way the normal life cycle of a grasshopper is that it goes from egg to larva to nymph to grasshopper overof suspects that under certain conditions which he himself is not able to uh, identify what these conditions are there's a fifth stage of life which is the locusts stage at the same time as overov is studying this but this is such a radical theory that he's scared to uh, publish it or uh, be open about it a guy yeah. in south africa called faure is coming to roughly the same uh, conclusions and he is making he is publishing scientific papers about his observations and towards the 1920s or 30s overof realizes that faure is coming to the same conclusion as he is and rushes out a paper to put down his theory which is that a locust is a phase of life of a grasshopper endlessly fascinating for multiple reasons uh, let me begin with the one that uh, i was most strongly reminded of right now it's eerie how often uh, the more you read about how science developed over the ages how two people in two completely unrelated parts of the world seem to come up with the same idea at the same point of time i mean yes coincidence is a thing but think of wallace and think darwin think of leibniz and newton and now think of these two gentlemen it seems to happen with much more frequency than it should i suppose there's an explanation for that which is that as you know base of scientific knowledge builds up and since we're mentioning newton and leibniz newton talked about how his work was standing on the shoulders of giants, giants. once the once those giants are there it's not that only one person can stand on the shoulders <laughs> that is true all right and the second thing that reminded me of although you haven't really uh, mentioned it uh, in our conversation right now but you mentioned it very explicitly on the blog post and let me bring about a related point first i don't know about you but i'm always wary of dispensing advice to young people because i used to hate receiving advice when i was in college but even with that disclaimer one advice that i unhesitatingly give is read more science fiction and the reason i bring that up is because you seem to be as big a fan of jurassic park you need to be of a certain age to read the book that is true but i loved the book when i was in college and it turns out you are a 
if not an equally big fan at least it seems to have made a similar amount of impact on you that's true and the reason of course uh, for the benefit of the audience uh, we are bringing this up right now is because the phase changes which others uh, may only have mentioned in passing are really key to understanding how locusts come to be locusts and anybody who's read the jurassic park uh, series especially jurassic park and lost world must be familiar with ian malcolm the guy who's the chaos mathematician in jurassic park yeah and who has a much bigger role in the books than he does in the movies yep. though in the movies he benefits by from being played by the awesome jeff goldblum <laughs> yes and uh, it's only now others when uh, you and i are speaking about this that i suddenly got reminded of the fact that in jurassic park also there was a pretty important biological change without which the whole plot of jurassic park simply would not have worked the ability of i think it was females to spontaneously turn into males or the other way around yes this was uh, uh and let's uh, bring anyone who's not read jurassic park or seen the original movies up to speed yeah in jurassic park the conceit is that dinosaur dna is extracted from mosquitoes which are trapped in amber and yep. which is amber dating back to the time of the dinosaurs but this dna is incomplete so the company which is trying to reconstruct the dinosaurs fills in the missing dna with dna from frogs and what they forget is that these are frogs which have the capacity to change their own uh, biological sex when there is no nobody else of the opposite sex around what this further leads to is that the dinosaurs in jurassic park are able to breed and start laying eggs exactly yep. and to anybody who's not uh, read the book i suppose almost everybody of a certain age has seen the movie but if you haven't read the book you might be able to spend a day or so in reading the book i think it will still stand the test of time not all michael crichton novels do there are some truly horrific ones but jurassic park remains one of my all time favorites yeah and uh, we should mention that uh, the science communication side of twitter and blogging has frequently debunked the idea that frog yeah. dna inserted uh, can lead to such uh, sex changes in even reconstructed dinosaurs but yes. the idea is fascinating despite that absolutely as with all good science fiction so long as you're left with a left with a tantalizing sense of but what if that's good enough for me okay and a reference that uh, would be surprising even under the best of time but especially now uh, when you speak about taxonomy and the act of naming things first let's just back up a little and tell people the etymology of the name locust itself it comes from as you mentioned locus astus but i'll leave it to you to explain what it means and then i'll tell you the book that this bullet point about taxonomy reminded me of but could you just uh, help our audience understand where the name locust comes from so locus as uh, anyone who remembers class 11 maths is point or Look place I. and uh, astus is burnt so lo- locus astus means a burnt place which refers to how once a swarm of locusts has swept through a uh, field they have destroyed it so completely that it might as well have been burnt to the ground yep 
so the thing that uh, i wanted to speak about uh, to anybody who is listening right now is adish has devoted almost i think three points and perhaps more to speaking about the importance of a naming things b creating categories or a taxonomy and c making sense of the world by putting things in lists and the weird reference well weird perhaps uh, to everybody right now the weird reference that i thought of is one of my all time favorite books a book called zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance in which uh, the author robert persick speaks rather sneeringly about aristotle's almost single minded devotion to the urge to name classify and categorize absolutely everything under the sun and how that robs the world of romance that takes us into a whole separate uh, discussion and i don't entirely agree with uh, robert persick over there but whenever i hear taxonomy i must be the only guy who is not reminded of carl linnaeus i'm actually reminded of uh, robert persick one of my favorite books when i read it also though again one of those books which it's been so long since i've read that i've forgotten far too much about it <laughs> including this specific part it's going to be perhaps uh, it's not really an adult discussion but given that this is a podcast meant for general audiences let's just quickly put the mandatory disclaimer out there but we're going to be talking about penises right now and it's a remarkable point of discussion but could you speak about how taxonomy spellings and reproductive organ shapes are related i found this point endlessly fascinating um spellings is not quite related but uh, it it was one of those interesting sites in the book which yep. was interesting enough to smile about but not interesting <laughs> enough to write about right but the quick version is that the the conventions of taxonomy are that the first accepted name for a species is the one that will stick for evermore after that which means that if anyone makes a, a spelling mistake in the species name but that spelling mistake is uh, accepted and the species is agreed to uh, to be a species that species will then be stuck with that spelling mistake for the rest of its life yep so two very weird uh, references over here adist and perhaps you are familiar with uh, both of them so first about the spelling mistake it's weird uh, about how mistakes as you mentioned tend to propagate because people want to be consistent with what was originally the norm but uh, excel microsoft excel uh, has a deliberate error within it when it comes to dates because of lotus 1 2 3 having a error related to dates oh no i didn't know about this so uh, very quickly for uh, the benefit of the audience uh, dates in microsoft excel begin on the 1st of january 1900 so if you write the number 1 in excel and convert it to a date it will become the 1st of jan 1900 and lotus 1 2 3 followed the same convention microsoft simply adopted it because they wanted to replace what was then the more popular software as it turns out the year 1900 is not a leap year and you might want to look up uh, online why it is not a leap year but unfortunately the engineers at lotus 1 2 3 did not know that and they decided to encode 1900 with a leap year because excel had to be backward compatible with lotus they ended up deliberately inserting an error in their own program even though they knew the existence of the error and 
like i said it's not just taxonomy and uh, botany that has this problem but if you want to make stuff backward compatible you have to live with the original error and the sure. se- and the second point that uh, i got reminded of when i read this particular uh, uh, point is again one of my all time favorite uh, books i'm naming a lot of them right now but there is this lovely book called i think dr tatiana's sex advice to all creation is this fiction or non fiction non fiction it's uh, written in the style of an agony aunt and she invites uh, species to write in with their sexual problems and she gives each species advice about their own particular problems pertaining to sex for example the praying mantis having its head ripped off after sex and that's just one of many examples in the book but it's a brilliant way to learn more about reproduction in the animal kingdom okay uh we've been going on for the better part of an hour and in the interest of doing justice to the second thing that we were going to speak about at this i propose we end up speaking only about locusts uh, right now because it'll take us at least another 5 minutes to even try and wrap this up so my apologies for going on much longer than we had planned but like i said i found this post endlessly fascinating uh and uh, of course assuming you're okay with this i'm absolutely fine with this okay all right so very briefly uh, because we are coming towards the end of the episode uh, could you speak about one climate change and second the bison theory not because they were the correct one but because i found both of them fascinating uh does this mean that we are skipping over uh, grasshopper penises oh we ended up not talking about it at all yes no please please go back and speak about grasshopper penises i'm so sorry by definition a species is something which can mate with its uh, with other members of the species and can't mate with members outside that species and practically by definition again if your uh, reproductive organs are so shaped that within a species the male and female reproductive organs are so highly molded to each other that they won't fit inside anyone else's this kind of makes you a species by default and because of this entomologists who were studying grasshoppers and locusts towards the end of the 19th century had to use microscopes and examine the penises of male grasshoppers and to classify them in different species and this uh, since we had been talking about the agony in this time over whether grasshoppers and locusts were the same thing it this technique was used to f- find out if the rocky mountain locust which was def- devastating uh, american agriculture was any of the known grasshopper species i am uh, i consider myself lucky slash blessed uh, to be able to have spoken in this episode because i don't think we've covered as weird a range of topics as we've managed to in the last 50 minutes or so even given how abstract our references tend to be this has to be some sort of a record and the reason i'm half smiling right now uh, is because sort of completing the loop 
but this is the last point that we'll speak about uh, in this particular episode could we finish by explaining to our audience where counts mama and krishna come into the picture i think we are a while away from that <laughs> okay so we we sh- we should uh, do uh, bison and climate change first all right let's go ahead and do that since i had mentioned the political and uh, economic context for uh, this move of americans across the mississippi at, at this time of life uh-huh the uh, and how this move of uh, white americans from the eastern states was also accompanied by uh, massacres of the native americans who were originally living there it was not only that there was war or battles against the native americans themselves yep at the same point these uh, both the us military as well as the civilians were hunting the bison of this area as well and during this point the bison also uh, almost went ex- extinct this was both a, in a way sheer extraction of na- natural resources both for the bison skins to t- turn into leather or fur and for bison meat but it was it had a subtext of also destroying the resource which the native americans depended upon so this is the context now we are talking about a time where there have been no locust infestations in north america for almost 15 or 20 years right and nobody and somehow nobody actually notices since since it's not bad news people actually don't pay any attention to this and the entomological uh, commission keep worrying that there is going to be a new outbreak at any point but after about 15 years of no locust swarms at all they come to the conclusion that the rocky mountain locust probably has gone extinct and now they start trying uh, trying to figure out what is the cause of extinction one theory is that the locust depended on the bison and when the bison went to near near extinction it took the locust down with it mm-hmm. this theory was eventually proved uh, disproven both by people who came before jeffrey lockwood jeffrey lockwood spoiler has come up with reasonably solid theory of what actually caused the extinction which is discussed in the last couple of chapters of this book yeah but uh, he does devote a chapter on all the uh, theories which came before his and which were disproven in one way or the other the econometrician in me is tempted to think about correlation causation and uh, intermediary variables but we'll for the sake of our collective sanity we'll not go there right now okay <laughs> but the uh, now, so now to circle back to uh, the point that i raised uh, earlier 
and like i said to sort of circle back in terms of how weird this episode has been and therefore how lovely it has been how exactly does krishna and kaunsa fit into this so to do this we have to get into lockwood's theory of why the uh, rocky mountain locust actually did go extinct yeah and his theory is that as long as the american settlers were only in the plains they were encountering the locusts at the peak of the uh, locust population boom and they were seeing the locusts when the swarm had grown to a size where the only way it could keep feeding itself was to head on to the plains and consume everything in its path but about 10 to 15 years after the initial settlement settlers had moved even further west and into colorado unlike the uh, plain states colorado was mountainous and the only area suitable for uh, agriculture here was the river valleys right which was also the breeding ground of the locusts now once these settlers came over here they found that the soil in the colorado river valleys was not that great for agriculture so focused on growing cattle and to grow cattle they had to irrigate the land to so they were flooding the soil over there growing alfalfa feeding this uh, alfalfa to the cattle which were also drinking lots of water mm-hmm. and by this repeated flooding of the so- soil along the river banks they were killing the locusts and the locusts which would have started off as uh, grasshoppers and on hitting a certain population density of grasshoppers and turned into a locust swarm were almost completely wiped out as eggs and nymphs and we get into why this is reminiscent of krishna because kamsa fearing that uh, if i remember right devki's ch- child would grow up yeah. to uh, kill him yeah. decided to kill the children when they were babies and this is in a way american farmers who have everything to lose from locust swarms killing the locusts at the first point in the life cycle rather than ha- having to deal with them at the locust swarm phase now what makes it terrifying in and i said that the the book started out terrifying in its description of locusts and then became fascinating and then becomes terrifying in a completely different way mm-hmm. is that this is a completely unintentional uh, massacre the cattle farmers who moved into colorado did not even know that what they were doing was going to wipe out the locusts they were going their merry way and the locusts got wiped out as not just an unintended side effect but as an unknown side effect nobody even realized that this was a side effect until uh, 100 years later again the economist in me is screaming positive externalities but 
that perhaps should be a topic for another day. I agree, but the Lockwood mentions the negative externalities also, or rather positive, uh, or rather speculative or possible negative externalities, which is that with the uh, with the extinction of the Rocky Rocky Mountain uh, locust. This yeah. may be the reason why bird life in North America is uh, suffering so much because birds in uh, North America no longer have a food source. Wow. Excellent. When I say excellent, uh, I don't mean that approvingly, but in terms of so much unexpected knowledge. All right. I think that's more than uh, anybody can stomach for a single episode. The weird part is, I don't think we finished speaking about uh, locusts entirely. So perhaps we might want to tie up some loose ends uh, the next time we meet Adish and then do justice to the other episode that unfortunately we were not able to speak about at all. The other book. The other book, yes, sorry. But uh, on the bright side, the other book is about one of our favorite topics, which is cities. So exactly. maybe we can speak about it in the context of another book on cities. There's a thought. A wonderful done. thought. Are we going to say anything else about locusts or are we done for today? No, I think we are done for today. Perhaps we can begin with, a, like I said, a brief recap, tie up loose ends and then speak about urbanization the next time we talk. Fantastic. So I look forward to that. Have a great day. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Adish. This was fantastic. See you. You've been listening to That Reminds Me, Episode 2. Today's conversation was between Ashish Kulkarni and Adish Khanna. Ashish's blog is econforeverybody.com and Adish's blog is adish.net. That Reminds Me is a podcast produced by Ashish Kulkarni and Adish Khanna. You can find all episodes of this podcast at thatreminds.me where you can leave your comments. You can also email us. Our address is feedback at datreminds.me. The podcast is supported in part by a grant from Emergent Ventures. The show music is The Carnival of the Animals, performed by the Seattle Youth Symphony, courtesy Ms. Open at musopen.org.